This evening, I am pleased to direct your attention to the book of Daniel, chapter 4, and uh, with a sermon that I've entitled, From Haughtiness to Humility. From Haughtiness to Humility. I would like us to read this portion from God's Holy Word, and then we will look to Him in prayer. Let's read. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Could we get the other verses all the way down to verse 37? Well, we'll stay there for now and we'll work through the rest of the sermon as we proceed. We love a success story. We have witnessed those who came from difficult and challenging background and rising to prominence, overcoming difficult odds to triumph in the field of sports and education and even business. What is sad, however, is at the pinnacle of their success, many forget where they came from, forgetting those persons who have helped them along the way and begin to behave as if they have an entitlement to the success that they now are experiencing. The text before us is the continuation of the prophet Daniel's focus on King Nebuchadnezzar, that famed king of Babylon. This king was a son and successor of Nabopolassar, who delivered Babylon from its dependence on Assyria and laid Nineveh in ruins. Nebuchadnezzar was reportedly or reputedly the greatest and most powerful of all the Babylonian kings. The king amassed a great empire and his reign was typified by strength through conquest. He invaded and plundered Moab and Ammon, Edom and even Jerusalem. Resistance was immediately and relentlessly crushed. Nebuchadnezzar also subdued the whole of Palestine and he took Jerusalem carrying away captive a great multitude of the Jews to include Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. His reign typified sheer force. He was not challenged. His word was law and to disobey him was punishable by death. He is introduced in chapter 1 of the book as the one directing the conquest and the captivity of the Hebrews, taking them away to Babylon. In chapter 2 we see him having a dream, a dream that tormented him and left him restless. 
He called his logicians and astrologers and demanded that they both tell him the dream and its interpretation. To which they protested and retorted, but but king, usually how this works is that you will tell us the dream and we will give you the interpretation. But the king insisted, you better tell me the dream and its meaning or you will die. Not only did he threaten to kill those who would not tell him the dream, but he actually carried it out. When the massacre started, word came to Daniel who begged time to consult with his colleagues, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they decided to seek the God of the ages to help them to come up with the interpretation of this dream. The interpretation of the dream was given. And Daniel revealed to the king that his kingdom is coming to an end. In fact, other kingdoms will also rise, but they too will come to an end. But God will establish a kingdom, and according to verse 44, this kingdom is of such... That whereas all the other kingdoms shall be destroyed, God's kingdom will know no end. This was the first real introduction to God Almighty that King Nebuchadnezzar would have. Don't you would think that after such a wonderful experience of, of, of him knowing at least what the score was, that the king would heed but rather the king became more callous and arrogant. Next, in chapter 3, he built a golden image and instructed that at the certain time when the music sounds, that everyone is to bow in homage to this golden statue, this golden image. Of course, we know this is made in honor of himself. <laughs> The king had a fascination with his own self, self-image. But of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, out of respect for God Almighty, refused to bow. To this, the king became furious. And he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times, so much so that those who would bound these three Hebrews and to cast them and they themselves were consumed by the heat when he put them in he was even more fascinated to see that as they fell they were not consumed he cried out what is this didn't we put three men in this fiery furnace how was it that I'm seeing four and the fourth resembled that of the Son of God. What we have before us is God in many instances getting this king to consider his ways, but he would not bow in honor to this king. But the day finally came when God broke his resistance and humbled him and taught him a lesson that would change the course of his life. And what we have before us is the king's own testimony captured and recorded by the prophet Daniel as a legacy to the grace of God. What lessons can we learn from this passage? 
that we may examine ourselves in the light thereof, and our lives too can become trophies to the grace of God. First of all, let us consider the championing of pride. The championing of pride. Look at verses 29 and 30. We're told that at the end of 12 months he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Let me ask you a question, what is pride? Pride may be defined as a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. It is a feeling of satisfaction in one's accomplishments, in one's possessions, and in one's pursuits. King Nebuchadnezzar was the epitome of pride. After all, he was the king of Babylon. He conquered many territories and ruled with unbridled power. Historians tell us that Babylon was a vast empire, a city with a square spanning 14 miles in length by 14 miles in width. Surrounded by a brick wall 56 miles long, 300 feet high and 25 feet thick. It was a vast city consisting of many temples, refurbished with exquisite architecture. There were rivers and canals and aqueducts that adorned the city. It was the envy of the known world. The army was great and well equipped. However, like so many who have risen to prominence, King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with pride. What then is the nature of this pride? And how can we identify it so we may take heed lest we become overwhelmed or overcome with it? Notice A, you can recognize pride by destructive arrogance. Verse 29 tells us that at the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. This, scholars of the inspired text tell us, is an amplification of verse 4, where we read, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. The life and prosperity, or the life of prosperity and ease, was more than a description of what the king possessed. It was a description of what possessed the king. This became his identity. This became his security, and this became his significance. This is so typical of many today. People are not happy until they have money. Or unless they have some money. Unless they have possessions. Unless they have some letters behind their names. This is what defines them. This is what gives them peace of mind. And this, if taken away, would cause them to believe that life is not worth the living. It continues to... (laughs) strike me how people with so much money will lose a little or have a reversal in fortune and they will write a note and then go and jump on the train tracks and kill themselves 
this, 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 this whole idea of arrogance and this destructive arrogance is the slippery slope that will inevitably hasten one destruction. But notice B, displaced allegiance. Look at verse 30. He continues, For a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar had no place for God. His paradigm was the God of Israel was separate and aloof. And as a result, poses no threat to his reign as the king of Babylon. As a result, the chief end, his chief end was not to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. For he had no place or room for God. Far from building a legacy to the king of glory, the king was about building a name and legacy for himself and his own honor. One historian remarked that 90% of the bricks discovered in the ruins of Babylon had Nebuchadnezzar's name imprinted on them. Brethren, this is the conception of idolatry and its growth and maturity will soon end in the king's demise. But it's also something else that tells us what pride or how pride looks. We see defective assessment. Look at verse 30. He says that I have built. Notice his assessment was I built it. Now why is this assessment defective? We can see that the strength, the labor, the materials and skills all came from others. Yet the king is taking all the credit for building the city. Babylon was built many ages before he was born. But Nebuchadnezzar claims that he's the one who has built it. Yes, he may have fortified and beautified it, but Babylon was there before he was born. Uh, he boasts about his reign, he boasts about his dominance. One famous Roman emperor boasted concerning Rome, saying, I quote, I found it brick, but I left it marble, unquote. The king built it with the assistance of his subjects. Yet he boasts that he did it by the might of his power. He built it for security and convenience. Yet he boasts that he built it purely for the honor of his majesty. Not for the benefit of the city and the good of his subjects. But for the honor and glory of his own majesty. To show his riches, to show his power. And to make his name immortal to future generations. One commentator said, and I quote, Note, pride and self-conceitedness are sins that most easily beset great men who have great things in the world. They are apt to take the glory to themselves which is due to God only. Unquote. Brethren, it is easy for us to become self-righteous and believe that such display of pride and arrogance is unique to the unsaved. 
But I have come to see that even professing Christians, if we are not careful, can succumb to this level of pride. What am I talking about? You see, our assessment is often defective too. For instance, perhaps God has used you to accomplish something of renown. It is easy to take the credit that belongs to God. Perhaps the ministry in which you are serving or even leading is thriving. Perhaps your wife and children are behaving and the relationship is deeply satisfying. Perhaps you finally got the man or woman of your dreams or come into some financial success. How many stop and deliberately give God credit for such blessings in their lives? How many are prepared to say that I am what I am only by the grace of God? I've come to realize that God does not need any one of us to accomplish his will. We are the ones who need him. He is the all-sufficient one and we are fully and totally dependent upon him. This means we must constantly remind ourselves of the words of Matthew Chapter 6 and verse 13. In part it says. For yours is the kingdom. And the power. And the glory. Forever. Amen. Secondly what can we learn. That we may examine our lives. In the light of this passage. Notice number two. The certainty of punishment. Verse 31 to 33, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Notice, that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Notice how God responded to the pomposity, the haughtiness of King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 31 to verse 33, they come as a vivid reminder That God is no respecter of person. God demonstrated that he had, he had had it with the king's display of pride. Notice again the many times that God sought to get the king's attention. He first had a dream back in chapter 2 that tormented him. Daniel interpreted the dream and warned him that his kingdom is coming to an end. But he would not heed He built a statue in honor of himself and upon threatening destruction of those who would not bow, he was again confronted by God's power to protect his own and deliver his people. Yet he will still not bow. In chapter 4, preceding our text specifically, he had another dream. This dream was even more earth-shaking to the king. 
But did he heed? No, he didn't. Let's look at this dream and to see how earth-shaking it was. Because it would tell us something about the nature of the king's arrogance. Let's look at verse 10 and, and, and read it onwards because the king is telling us about his dream. Verse 10 says that these were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher. A holy one coming down from heaven, he cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it, and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. And the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beast on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man, let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he will. This was a dream, and Daniel was once again summoned. And Daniel interpreted the dream that, King, once again your days are numbered. This tree that has risen to prominence is you. But God will strike you down if you will not repent. But we see from verse 31 to 33 that another 12 months would have elapsed. The first dream and its interpretation, we have the incident with the fiery furnace. We have the second dream of his interpretation, yet the king would not bow. And we are now reading that it was 12 months after that the king is on the rooftop surveying all the wonders that he has constructed. God was about to pour out his promised wrath on the king. We will see that God's justice displayed here, it was swift, it was specific, it was severe, and it was sustained. Notice that the judgment was swift. Look at verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven saying, Notice judgment came at the height of his arrogance. While the word was still in his mouth. 
This reminds us of what the inspired writer wrote in Proverbs 6 and verse 15. It says, speaking of the wicked, therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. Many today, in their arrogance, continue in their failure to recognize that it is the God deserves all the glory. And this king, in the midst of his boasting, was met with an immediate display of the wrath of God. It was swift. But also, notice B, it was specific. We read King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Notice the wrath of God was specifically targeting the king. It is written in James chapter 4 and verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One commentator said in response to this text, that it means that God deliberately sets himself against the proud. This means that wherever pride is found, look carefully, for there is a bullseye to the wrath of God. The judgment was swift. The judgment was specific. Notice, see, the judgment was severe. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass. He was driven from men, and he ate grass like the ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. Part of verse 32 and verse 33. You may be asking yourself, why such severity? You see, this is because the level of the punishment is consistent or commensurate with the nature of the offense. You would agree that a lie told to a friend does not carry the same punishment as a lie told to your father. That same lie carries an even greater punishment if told to a magistrate or a judge of the court. Likewise, because God is infinite, the punishment for sin is commensurate and arises to the level of such severity. The king lost his mind, he lost his kingdom, he lost his dignity, he lost it all. But notice D that the punishment, the justice was also sustained. And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Here in verse 32 is the third time that this pronouncement is made. It started in verse 17, it continued in verse 25, and now verse 32. In other words, God was telling this man, you are going to learn this lesson. God is determined that the king is to pay the full measure of his debt to the wrath of justice of God. All the 
of God threatened came to pass and for as long as it was intended to last. How has the mighty fallen? The king who was once the epitome of power is now impotent. The one who was the envy of others is now scorned and rejected. He who ate the choicest meat and drank the finest wines are now made to eat grass. He who socialized with princes and dignitaries now could only find acceptance among brute beasts. He who was lifted to the heavens in pride was now brought lower than the dust. All because he failed to learn that only one is worthy to sit on the throne of the universe and only one deserves all the glory, all the honor, and all the power and that's God and God alone. Everything that was promised, threatened, came to pass. But thanks be to God, in his wrath, God remembered mercy. Let's look at verse 34 to 37 because we see there a celebration of pity. We read at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. What good news! The man who was once a lunatic, the crazy man, is no reasoning. Oh, hallelujah. He says, my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation. He continues, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, the Buchanan, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride is able to put down. God was pleased to bring an end to Nebuchadnezzar's suffering. Grace was given. And we can see this grace in so many ways. Consider A. That he responded with resignation. Look at verse 34. At the end of the time I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my understanding returned to me. Notice that God brought him to the end of himself. And it was then that he lifted his eyes to heaven. Notice as well that it was only when he lifted his eyes to heaven that his reason returned. This is not a coincidence. You see, he gained the right perspective on things 
only when he looked away from himself to the all-wise God. Notice that he also responded with recognition. He says, verse 35, verse 34, and verse 35, and, and, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? It is fascinating. It is so fascinating what the grace of God can do in the lives of sinners. He was a man so full of himself that he had no room on the throne of his life for another. Here is a man who knew no other tune than the song of self-praise, but now singing the praises of the only one who sits on the throne of the universe and the one who sits now on the throne of his heart. In his poetry of praise, he celebrated God's infinity, God's reign, God's eternality, God's all-sufficiency, God's sovereignty. Look at what grace has caused in the man's life. The one who only had praise for himself is now singing the praise of Almighty God. That's grace. It reminds me of that stanza of that great hymn, I once was an outcast. A stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, and an alien by birth. But now I'm adopted. My name's written down. I'm an heir to a mansion, a home, and a crown. You see, I'm a child of the king. A child of the king with Jesus, my savior. I'm a child of the king. He responded with, with resignation. He responded with recognition. But notice how God responded. God responded with restoration. Look at verse 36. He says, at the end or at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added. Notice all that he lost was restored. His reason returned. The glory of his kingdom returned. His honor and the dignity returned. His subjects returned. Uh, and greater majesty even returned. All thanks to the grace of God. But it begs the question. How is it that God could be so merciful to this once pompous and vain king? Can a limited period of justice satisfy the infinite debt of the king's pomposity. We know that God's justice is infinite, and so it begs the question, how could 
this king, so proud, so wicked, is now the beneficiary of so much grace. We didn't read of any acts of kindness or righteousness that he did. In fact, God's grace visited him in the midst of his lunacy. God, and I want you to understand this, God poured out his wrath. And after a period of time with no change in the behavior of the king, God just showed mercy. What a God! How can this be? I'll show you how. God was pleased to bring to the end, or, or bring an end to the pain and misery of the king, because God placed the death of the king's sin on his son Jesus. I'll say it again. God was pleased to bring to an end the pain and the misery of King Nebuchadnezzar. Because God placed the death of the sin of King Nebuchadnezzar on his own son Jesus. Look at verses 14 and 15. Because it's right there. In the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is hearing that he cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beast get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, Leave the stump of his roots in the earth. That's it right there. You see, that stump that was commanded to remain, God would now build a monument to his grace. He cut down all the arrogance, all the pomposity of the king, stripped him down to nothing, and then God built from his own life a monument to his grace in Christ. Unlike the gold statue that was built in honor of the king, God was about to build a monument to his grace to us in Christ. Grace to the king in Christ. So what? Jesus did is that he paid in full the infinite debt of our sins with his infinite blood. You see, look, the beauty of the gospel is that the guilt of Adam's sin that was duly placed on all of Adam's posterity, God was pleased to take the guilt of the sins of his elect and place them on Christ. <laughs> this passive obedience of Christ is at the heart of the gospel that we who deserve to be punished eternally in hell because we sin in Adam the guilt of our sin was placed on Christ but he didn't stop there you see the righteousness that the law of God required of us we cannot produce it. But God's appointed king, Jesus Christ, in his active obedience, kept the law of God perfectly and gives us the credit. So the righteousness that was required of this king, this king was looking towards Calvary. To that appointed king 
who would come and keep the law of God perfectly and gives credit to all those who would believe. So in this we see that God's grace is free, it's sovereign, and simply amazing. This is why one hymn writer would say, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. And all oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Sinners so vile, so wicked, could find grace because God was pleased to punish his own son. Having lived a life of perfect obedience, and he gives us the credit. So by faith, trusting in his active and passive obedience, his active obedience is keeping the law of God for us, that we should have kept. And his passive obedience dying the death for us, that we should have died. We, who are far off, can now be brought nigh by faith in Calvary. In closing, the more I study the wisdom of this world, the more I realize how completely opposed it is to the wisdom of God. If you follow the world, you will believe that the way to advance yourself is to become self-assertive. But God teaches us the necessity of self-denial, of humbling ourselves before Him. He says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The world tells us that we get by laying up treasures on earth. But God tells us to lay up treasures in heaven. We neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. The world tells us that happiness comes by pursuing the things of this world. But God says to seek First, the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Brethren, friends, I'm trying to tell you that if we follow the world's wisdom, we will end up wasting precious days. And after all, living a life that is so full of this world's goods, we'll reach the end of our days only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. This king had everything that we could ever dream. But without Christ, he was lost. He was arrogant, self-assertive. He lived for himself. He was filled with pride and filled with arrogance. But God was pleased to teach him a lesson. That only one sits on the throne. And he disposes of kingdoms and he gives it to whomever he's pleased. He was introduced to this God in a most painful way. But thanks be to God, he also found mercy when he looked away from himself and he looked to a God who is full of grace. Grace shown to us in his only begotten son. Who did everything on the behalf of vile sinners. And he gives us the credit. So today 
if we trust in him we are justified before God adopted into the the family of God and sanctified that is becoming more in the likeness of our God conformed to his image now look at what God's grace can do it makes the proud humble it makes saints out of sinners it rescues the lost it breaks the bondage of sin it sets prisoners free it gives life to those who are dead in sin and this prompted one hymn writer to sing this beloved hymn man of sorrows what a name for the son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim hallelujah what a savior he says guilty vile and helpless we spotless lamb of God was he full atonement can it be hallelujah what a savior lifted up was he to die it is finished was his cry now in heaven exalted high so I say hallelujah Hallelujah. what a savior you see Nebuchadnezzar's song is also my song that today I have all praise and honor and glory to God and God alone for rescuing vile sinners like myself giving us a home giving us hope that is beyond the grave giving us hope that one day we will see him face to face and will praise him forever and ever Amen Amen. Hallelujah